A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad you're with me on the program today. And even more excited that we have some good news to talk about with Costas Morris, a Second Amendment attorney with Michelle and Associates out in California. The uh, Ninth Circuit did what, honestly, I thought was impossible. They actually um, uh, came down with an order that protects the right to keep and bear arms. It's not unusual to see a U.S. District Court judge in California do this. Um, And in fact, it's not completely uh, unknown for even a three-judge panel to side with gun owners. But ordinarily, those decisions don't last very long, right? Before the Ninth Circuit either steps in on bonk or in some cases, again, with a three-judge panel and undoes whatever good decision has come down. Uh, In this case... You've got uh, U.S. District Judge Cormac Carney, who had granted an injunction against uh, all of the challenged sensitive places that went into effect on January the 1st as part of SB2. Um, An administrative stay was granted to the state of California that blocked Judge Carney's order from taking effect. But on Saturday, that Ninth Circuit panel ended the administrative stay, rejecting the state's emergency appeal for an injunction. Uh, And now it looks like the uh, status quo will remain in effect until at least April, but we'll get the details from Acostas Morris. In fact, let's uh, kick off this conversation. Take a look and a listen. Acostas, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's great talking to you, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on. I've been a big fan for years, so it's a pleasure. Well, it's a mutual admiration society because I'm a big fan of, uh, uh, you know, I'm not really on social media anymore, but I do lurk on X and uh, you, Rob Romano, are uh, my my two probably biggest follows, right? They're the, the your, your account, Rob's account, they're the ones that I check multiple times a day. Um, so thank you for coming on the program and congratulations on, I know it's not a final victory, but uh, this is still a very big victory for gun owners. Uh, the Ninth Circuit announcing on Saturday that this administrative stay is over, right? And as of now, all of the challenged gun-free zones that uh, that, that you uh, uh, pursued an injunction, and uh, we saw Judge Cormac Carney grant an injunction, all of those gun-free zones are off the table for now. Is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, Judge Carney's injunction is back in effect in full, and we're very pleased about it. It, you know, restored the status quo as it existed on December 31st, you know, the heady days of uh, 2023. <laughs> so that's where we're at now. Yeah. All right. So the first question I've got to ask is, um, this was a, uh, a a panel of the Ninth Circuit that uh, said, you know what, we're going to let uh, the judge's order take effect. Can that decision be appealed on bonk by the state of California? Like, is there danger lurking? Because I, there's just a part of me, Casas, that doesn't believe that the Ninth Circuit can ever issue a good decision for gun owners or a decision that respects the Second Amendment that isn't immediately or almost immediately overturned? Yeah, it would be, I guess they could. Um, I haven't given that much thought, and maybe they would, but it would be incredibly unusual. I guess I shouldn't put it past the Ninth Circuit on bond, but it would be incredibly unusual to uh, for the on bond court to overturn the merits panel decision to issue a or to refuse to issue a stay, especially when this injunction merely preserves the status quo. So this isn't like our other cases, you know. Uh, for example, I, we have a case challenging the uh, 
the high capacity magazine law. And while we think that's unconstitutional, we do acknowledge, of course, that that's been the status quo in California for several years. So the government has that on going for it in terms of an injunction, because they can argue we're just trying to preserve the status quo until this case is decided. But here it's the reverse. The status quo is on our side. California has never restricted carry in these places, um, except for six days uh, this year. Um, and, and so it would be incredibly I think partisan, very political, very, you know, just raw, uh, an exercise in raw power for the Ninth Circuit en banc to reverse this and uh, this stay, which is just a stay pending appeal and to go ahead and reverse the status quo against us. So I don't expect that will happen, but you never know. I, 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 I've, uh, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't count anything out, but hopefully that isn't what comes to pass. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to be a little more cautiously optimistic here going forward. So um, the, the next oral arguments in this case uh, scheduled for April, is that correct? Yeah, we don't have the exact date yet, but it, it will be scheduled in April. This is a very expedited briefing, and I think it's because they want to they want to consider our case with the Hawaii case, the Wolford case, which is also being heard in April. So Okay, how, how similar are the Hawaii uh, statutes and the California statutes uh, in, in terms of, you know, where concealed carry is not allowed. Oh, yeah, they're very similar. I mean, all these Bruin response, these Bruin tantrum laws are copies of each other. New York started it and then everyone, you know, the, the usual suspects all copied it. Um, and Hawaii's uh, law is very similar. I think the plaintiffs there challenged less than we did, but they still did succeed in getting and joined everything they asked for, which was the vampire rule, parks, places that serve alcohol, banks, and uh, the parking lots of government buildings. So, yeah, we okay. challenged all that in ours. Yeah. You know, and I mean, you look at some of the analogs, the courts like Second Circuit, for example, have used to uphold some of these provisions. And I got to tell you, Casas, I mean, they are really stretching the bounds of credulity here, right? When you look at First of all, you know, when you go back and you look at the Supreme Court's uh, Bruin test, right, the uh, text history and tradition test, they made it clear that, listen, you can find a couple of laws, but that doesn't make it a longstanding national tradition, right, that these uh, types of bans were in place. And I keep seeing, you know, like this Texas law that banned concealed carry and uh, was it educational and scientific settings, maybe a ballrooms, uh, you know, and they're extrapolating that to say, well, in essence, you know, anywhere there, there might be a kid around. Uh, also, that's a sensitive place, right? Anything where there might be an educational purpose uh, to some facility. Also, now that's the same as a school. It seems to me like Judge Carney did a really, and granted, I'm a little biased here, but it seems like he did a really good job of of separating the wheat from the chaff, right? And 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 came to the conclusion that we really don't have a longstanding national tradition banning lawful gun owners from carrying in. Well, in this case, in all of the establishments that you all uh, uh, challenged in California. Yeah, and the, the the Second Circuit made a few mistakes, which Judge Carney did correctly, and several other district courts have done done correctly, including in Hawaii, who was an Obama-appointed Obama judge, by the way. Uh, but um, they made three major mistakes. First of all, they're not even supposed to look at analogs for most of these places, because most of these places existed before 1900. Not all of them, but we had bars, we had hospitals, we had parks, you know, in the 19th century, certainly. And Bruin tells us that when a place, when a problem, to the extent this is a problem, when a problem existed already in the founding era, or at least by the Reconstruction era, then you have to find a distinctly similar law. And if there is no distinctly similar law, that's evidence that the modern law is unconstitutional. So you only are supposed to do the analogical analysis under Bruin 
when there's a new societal concern or a new technology that that the founders or the people in the reconstruction could not have foreseen. Uh, but second, yes, to your point, even if you did do the analogical analysis, um, they only cite one or two laws. They seem to forget the part in Bruin. I say forget sarcastically because they're not. They're just ignoring it. But they, they forget the part in Bruin where you're supposed to find what's a representative tradition. And you know, one state out of, you know, by the 19th century, over 40 states, one state out of 40 states is not a representative tradition. And in fact, it was also a Texas law, I forget if it was this one or another one, that Bruin used as the example of an outlier. So they're going back to this uh, to this well. Now Texas is suddenly their favorite state, I guess, when it comes to gun control uh, in the 19th century. Uh, and they keep citing it. And that's very disappointing. And the last mistake they made, and Judge Carney caught this because we made this argument, is uh, California and New York are not constitutional carry states. To carry here, you have to have a permit. So if the state is going to argue that, because this was the big argument they made, yeah, hospitals existed, but they've changed dramatically. There's so much more technology. Of course, you know, if someone has a gun in a hospital, it's the same problem now as it is, you know, uh, 200 years ago, regardless of the technology. But but the point me, we made to Judge Carney was if they're going to argue that, that places have changed, you have to also consider the fact that unlike in 1860s California, where anyone could carry without a permit, now to carry in California, it's just a vetted subgroup of people that have applied, that have taken their course, that have paid all these fees. So it's only fair to consider both ends. If the places change, you also have to consider that the people who are carrying in California are also much more vetted now, and that should work against the state. And Judge Carney uh, thankfully agreed with us on all counts, and uh, that's why we got the big win we did. You know, and that is an excellent point, um, because, again, you can't have it both ways, as uh, the state of California yeah. is trying to do here. Uh, you know, if folks go to uh, to your uh, X account um, at Moros Costas, your pinned post is uh, a thread about uh, 18th and 19th century statues that uh, that you've taken a look at. Are, are you still actively um, looking into the history of gun control in this country? Is that still a, a, a big part of your job in this post-Bruin environment? Yeah, it's it's never been part of my job per se. Chuck might be upset <laughs> about all the research I do. It's just like outside of my job, I do that. That thread started for fun. It's, it's not really laws, although there are some laws in it. It's more commentary from the 18th and mostly 19th century um, of what people viewed the Second Amendment as. And what I found in over 60 entries now, uh, also uh, credit to at 2A History, who's contributed several posts, um, is that it was almost a matter of fact thing. It wasn't a subject of debate. Like they, they, this was in high school textbooks of the time where they'd say, yeah, you can have guns in case the government becomes tyrannical. And of course it's an individual, right? You know, there, there was the, the most debate there was that I found in the 19th century was whether concealable pistols could be banned because they were very much against concealed carry at the time. You know, it was seen as cowardly and people would open carry. And there's court cases saying, yeah, governments can ban small pistols, but not the Colt revolver because, you know, that's something you would open carry like a soldier. So um, it, it was an interesting time for sure. But what that research showed, I think, was that there was no supposed collective rights view in the 19th century. I think I found one person kind of arguing that. And even then it was only arguable that he was saying that. The rest are, you know, from everyone from random scholars all the way to President Grant 
um, was confirming that they that they saw this as an individual right. Not only confirming, like they were not acknowledging a debate and saying, yes, some people argue this and some people argue this, but I think this. They were just saying matter of factly, like you have a right to bear arms, you have a right to keep weapons, you know. So it, it wasn't even, it didn't even occur to them, uh, this whole like militia right thing that we've invented in the 20th century. Uh, it did not even occur to them. So that's, that's the main takeaway I found in doing that research. And by the way, credit to Dave Copel, because after I did the research, I found out that he had already done this back in the 1990s when he didn't have the benefit of Google Books like I did. That made my job easier. So uh, I'm proud to say I did find stuff he didn't include in that article, but a lot of it he had already found, which I didn't know until later. <laughs> well, you know, this is I, see, I, I'm such a history nerd that I, I love that thread. I love what Dave's been doing for decades. And I am always interested to, to you know, learn more because history we don't know. Uh, you know, all of our history. And so when you start digging through the dirt and, and you, you know, you never really know what you're going to uncover. I was reading a uh, a book about the American Revolution. Uh, well, I'm still reading it now. I actually have a couple of chapters left to go uh, by Gary Nash called The Unknown American Revolution. And there's a part where he's talking about the first constitutions that were written around 1776. Uh, so, you know, you've got Pennsylvania, you've got Vermont, New York, uh, Virginia, um, and what was interesting is so Nash is sort of laying out the case for the radicalism of the American Revolution, right? That this wasn't just a conservative revolution that wanted to replace the king, but but still keep, you know, most of our uh, body of laws intact. It was interesting to me that and I haven't done an exhaustive survey here, but Vermont, Pennsylvania, two of the constitutions that uh, Nash considers to be the most radical in terms of increasing the franchise. Right. Um, who could who's eligible to vote? Um, you know, Vermont, I think, lowered, I think they got rid of their property qualifications. Pennsylvania lowered it down to, I think you had to have five pounds worth of personal property. So that that franchised about 90% of the adult white male population in Pennsylvania. Those were the states that also had the most explicit protection for an individual right to keep and bear arms, um, as opposed to states like New York, which did not even mention the right to keep and bear arms. Virginia uh, talked about it, but not uh, specifically as an individual right, talked about, you know, the right of the militia or the right of the people, uh, but but put it sort of in a militia context. And I was struck by the fact that, again, when this nation was in the throes of birth, uh, those folks who were most interested, it seemed, in ensuring that we, the people, had access to uh, to the franchise were also the ones that were most explicitly concerned in ensuring that we, the people, continue to have access to our right to keep and bear arms. Neither Vermont or Pennsylvania, you know, talked about this as some sort of new right, but it was a right that they wanted to preserve against encroachment. And I think we still saw that same argument in 1791 uh, during the ratification of the Second Amendment. So where did this militia collective rights argument, when and where did it start to develop? Have you been able to track that down? I haven't done thorough research on that, but from what I've gathered, because I've looked at some 20th century stuff, you start to see it really in the post-war era. So after World War II, um, you see it a little bit. That, so all of these all of these arguments have their root in the 1910s in an article by Lucilius Emery, who was a legal scholar, a brilliant legal scholar, by the way, but he was wrong, in my opinion, on, on the Second Amendment. But he's the one that first argued this. It didn't seem to immediately gain traction. 
But after in the post-war era, it not only gained traction, but it kind of gaslit the whole country. Like they just they just decided that all of a sudden this was just a collective right, some weird, you know, uh, thing that like the Third Amendment uh, only really applied to the concerns of the 18th century and we don't need it anymore. Uh, and even if we did need it, it's just about the militia. Um, and then it got to the point that by uh, the 1990s, you had Justice Berger going on TV, which was the reason I started the thread, by the way, to debunk that and saying like, oh, the NRA has pushed this giant fraud on the American people or the gun lobby has pushed this giant fraud. And really, like, they are the ones that, whether they whether intentionally or not, pushed a fraud because uh, you can, I guess you could argue that all of these people I found in the 19th century are wrong. I think that's ridiculous, but you could argue <laughs> it. But you can't say the individual rights theory was invented in the 1970s because clearly there's dozens of examples of people, like, very matter-of-factly talking about it in the 19th century. So, um, yeah, that's... I think I think the birth of it came as a result of the post-war era um, and then accelerated in the 1960s, you know, with the push for the Gun Control Act and and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm definitely a nerd about all this uh, history of gun control. And all that, so. Well, and, and, and so today, has the collective rights theory fallen apart? Do gun control advocates still try to argue that that is just a collective right, that it is not an individual right? Or, or is it now, OK, it's an individual right that can be restricted as much as we want without actually violating the second amendment's protections. Yeah. And that look, they ultimately do not believe in an individual right to the extent they argue that, okay, we're fine with Heller now, but we just want to, we just want all this gun control. That's only because they know the current makeup of the Supreme court. If they got the chance to overturn Heller uh, and the, and but with it, McDonald and Bruin, they would do that in a heartbeat. And you still see some, like you had an amicus brief by a few law professors, I think, including Drew Stevenson, um, who called for, uh, in the Rahimi case, are calling for the Supreme Court to overturn Heller and Bruin and McDonald, you know, they, and they acknowledge that that's unlikely right now, but they're just pushing that argument. So uh, they still believe it. And frankly, I think this is all so silly because somebody in the 18th century would not see a distinction between an armed individual so long as they are law-abiding and peaceable and the militia. These were one and the same. They saw it was your duty to also serve in the militia. You had a gun for service in the militia, for hunting, for self-defense. You know, these were all the same thing. So I think that's what people don't understand. That's why when it says, you know, a well-regulated militia is necessary for the security of a free state, it's the right of the people to keep and bear arms because they would not see this distinction that we do today between the two. We're thinking of our military today, which is organized and government run, which by the way would horrify the founders. <laughs> but but, but, um, but the, we they've essentially created a distinction uh, through a 20th century lens that didn't apply then, which is ironic because these academic historians always chide us for uh, presentism and, you know, applying our current politics to the past. But that's exactly what they're doing. You know, they're, they're, they're creating a distinction where none existed back then. Yeah, no, I mean, it, you know, to go back to those uh, uh, late uh, 18th century constitutions I was talking about, it was interesting to me is that the arguments that were made about expanding the franchise in places like Vermont and Pennsylvania were, look, we the people are already expected to bear arms in defense of the state, right? We the people, regardless of our social status, regardless of whether or not we own personal property, um, we're expected to, you know, 
to take up our arms and, and defend ourselves and defend our state. So why shouldn't we be able to, you know, cast a vote for our elected representatives? Why shouldn't we have a say in the government that we are expected to defend? The right to keep your arms came before the, the you know, expansion of the franchise, right? So you had people who did not uh, have access to the full panoply of civil rights that we enjoy today, who still very much possess the right to keep arms and the expectation that they would uh, exercise that right, not only to defend their own families, but again, to defend you know the colonies or the states at the time. Um, and it is interesting how, again, we've sort of gotten that backwards. Um, all right, we're going to run out of time before I run out of questions here, Costa. So I want to, <laughs> I want to, I want to ask you. I'm going to get. I'm going to. I'm going to save my last question for uh, for a topical nature. I want. I'm. I'm always curious how folks got into this issue. Um, and you are such a smart guy. I'm so glad we've got you on our side. Um, is this an area of the law that that you have always been interested in? Did you sort of stumble into, you know, Second Amendment jurisprudence? How did you get here? So kind of funny. Uh, I went. To, I was in law school from 2011 to 2014, and my constitutional law topic uh, for my paper on my my term paper on constitutional law was why assault weapon bans were constitutional and allowed. So I've definitely flipped on this. I haven't gone back and read it because I'd probably be horrified. I'd have to do a Twitter thread uh, uh, disparaging myself. <laughs> but but I've definitely flipped on this issue. I was never um, hardcore anti-gun. I was always fine with the idea of owning a handgun. My dad's a lifelong hunter, so we've always had guns in the house. But I was one of those. I was like, well, why do you need this military rifle? You know, this this big scary thing. And what changed it? Um, and my feelings on this have since shifted. But the election of Donald Trump at the time, as a two-time Obama voter, a Clinton voter, um, scared me. I'm like, oh, this guy's a big authoritarian. And he's saying all these scary things. And wow, the Second Amendment, I kind of get it now. I kind of get why that exists, just in case this goes bad. My feelings have since shifted. I still think Trump's kind of a clown. No offense if you're a fan. You know, he did a lot of good things in terms of putting good judges on the court. Uh, but so so I, I don't hate Trump, really. But that was the the spark that started a gradual flip. And then by 2019, I... Uh, had, uh, was looking for new work because I was moving to LA with my wife who was taking a job here. And that's how I found Michelle and Associates because I heard about them through the Duncan case, the Freedom Week case, uh, where magazines were sold here. And I applied and the rest is history. So I wasn't, uh, you know, I guess I'm exhibit A in that minds can be changed. You know, sometimes it takes dramatic events, but, uh, and you, not everyone goes through the same route to, to get to these conclusions. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think also evidence yeah. of the fact that we are talking about a right of the people, not a right of the right, not a right of Republicans, not a right of conservatives. It doesn't matter who you vote for. It doesn't matter what you think, how you live. You know, if you're a law abiding uh, citizen, and even then, I think there's an open question about what, what exactly does law abiding encompass, right? Uh, you can, you can, Break the law by speeding. You don't lose your Second Amendment rights. I would argue you can even smoke a joint without losing your Second Amendment rights. But uh, well, again, we are talking about a right of the people, and that means people we disagree with, right? And that's one of the beautiful things about the Second Amendment is I think it really is the last big tent movement in this country where it doesn't matter. On some level, it doesn't matter what you think, what you believe, as long as you come together and that right to keep and bear arms, we find allies all across the political and ideological spectrum. And I think that is to our benefit. Yeah, and it, it would be a disaster. The Second Amendment right, you know, I think it's a natural right that pre-exists government, of course, but the Second Amendment right, which protects you from that, that government throwing you in jail, um, is only going to survive if it becomes a bigger tent. If this becomes, if this is a right of conservative 
people, then it's going to die. You know, the, 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 the long-term trends would be against us. So I'm very encouraged by the fact that more and more people, you know, maybe not everyone's with us on questions like assault weapons or magazines, but the, the general, right. The idea of, you know, having a handgun for defense, having a shotgun at home, you know, these basic things that is becoming a very big tent issue. And hopefully we can convince people of the rest of it as well. So we don't have a narrowed, um, a historical, uh, view of the second amendment. You know, I, I've recently done a law review article that talks about why assault weapons bans are completely against the history of the Second Amendment. I think I think people in the 19th century would think it hilarious that we're, you know, allowing small pistols, but banning AR-15s when they kind of did the reverse back then. Uh, not that I think small pistols should be banned or anything. I'm just saying that that's how some of them would have argued it. So um, we, we need to take a longer view and we need to disattach ourselves somewhat from the, not disattach, that sounds bad, but, but we need to keep in mind that temporary problems. And I do hope, say in a hopeful sense that uh, this mass shooting problem is a temporary problem, just like serial killers in the 1970s. You know, we should not lose our rights to solve something that frankly wouldn't even solve that problem anyway. So um, yeah, sorry, sorry for, I, I tend to ramble as, you, as you've seen from my Twitter posts. No, no, no <laughs> apologies necessary. All right. So the, the last question, and let's get back to, um, we'll get back to May versus Bana and uh, Carolero versus Bana. Um, oral arguments again coming up in April. We also have, I say we're going to get back to those cases. We also have Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, right? CRPA versus LASD uh, at all. And that's sort of challenging the other aspects of SB2, right? The training mandates, the psychological testing, all these requirements for applicants. Um, where are we and are you involved in that litigation as well? And, and do you know where we stand um, in terms of uh, maybe getting an injunction uh, or, yes. or uh, you know, putting some of those onerous provisions on hold. Yeah, so I, I'm also, I actually just last week drafted the motion for preliminary injunction on that one. So yeah, I'm working on it. That one isn't actually directly an attack on SB2. That's not how it started, but it does have that effect. So we're challenging the long wait times by the Los Angeles Sheriff Department, the high fees by the Laverne Police Department, because they're charging almost a thousand bucks for a permit. Uh, and then the discretionary criteria both of them use. For example, we have one plaintiff who was denied because he had firearms stolen out of the locked trunk of his car. So he had a renewal for a CCW permit denied with no option to appeal. We have another person who had a, uh, a, a, a CRPA member who had a uh, temporary restraining order issued against them. Uh, he had their gun. He had his gun seized, but as soon as it went to hearing, the judge dissolved the temporary restraining order. You know, he said, "Nope, like this isn't meritorious." So they, they, he dissolved it, and he the gentleman got his guns back. But when he went to apply for a CCW permit, they told him no, just because a temporary restraining order was filed against him. It didn't matter that a judge dissolved it immediately upon a hearing, and nothing's happened in the long time since then. Um, so that's the kind of stuff we're challenging. We're also the psych exam. You know, Laverne has a psych exam, which we argue should either not happen or if it's going to happen, shouldn't be as burdensome as it is because it's like a two hour drive and a five hour exam and it costs 150 bucks. So it, it, they make it as abusive as possible. And finally, the one we're most hoping to succeed on for long term prospects is reciprocity. You know, we have a plaintiff who is a Florida resident who's frequently in California and has no right to carry her because uh, California both does not honor the carry permits of any other state. And also, even if you wanted to subject yourself to the long process to get a California CCW, you can't. There's no process for non-residents to get a permit. So we want California to honor the permits of other states. But if the judge is not willing to go that far to at least uh, force California to let people from other states apply for a California CCW permit. 
Yeah, I'm excited about that aspect of the case as well. Uh, as somebody who you know lives in Virginia, um, and you know there are all kinds of reciprocity issues. I don't know why my right to carry stops at the state line in Maryland, for example, or Washington D.C., um, but California is, I think, perhaps even more egregious because, as you say, there's no way I could at least apply if I wanted to for a D.C. non-resident permit. Um, I think I can even do that in Maryland, but in California, you don't even have that option, right? I mean, if 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 you don't live there. Your Second Amendment rights disappear when you cross the state line. That's correct. There's no legal way to carry here, and I we think that's you know it, it's it's against a, a Burgerfell. You know we have we have plaintiffs who are California residents but have Arizona and Utah CCWs, and that's the situation one the plaintiffs in Obergefell had. They went and got married in another state, and then their home state wouldn't honor that marriage license. So we make that comparison for the judge. You know we do have a judge who was appointed by Joe Biden. That's we're, we're still hopeful we're going to convince her because we think these issues are. You know, these aren't about, you know, big, scary assault weapons or anything controversial. This is just like, you know, your honor, they're charging a thousand bucks and the LASD has an 18 month wait time. Would you be OK with this with any other constitutional right? You know, would you be OK with any other constitutional right ending at state borders? So we're hopeful that, you know, despite the, uh, the maybe unfortunate draw, but she hasn't ruled on a Second Amendment case. So I hope uh, this judge does see it our way uh, and and proves the doubters wrong, as it were. Yeah. I mean, listen, we, you know, we, we saw the Third Circuit uh, Court of Appeals in Range versus Garland. There were, you know, a number of uh, Biden, Obama appointed judges who agreed that Mr. Range should not lose his Second Amendment rights for a, a nonviolent felony conviction 20 years ago. Um, you know, I, I'd like to think that not every judge is uh, consumed by partisanship uh, and that they can take a look at the issues before them. And, and in this case, again, there are so many egregious violations that uh, even a, a liberal or a progressive judge, I think that there's a progressive case for the Second Amendment to be made. Um, and, and I, you know, I think citing things like uh, Obergefell. Um, I think it's beneficial, uh, frankly, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll resonate with that judge. So you're working on a request for an injunction. Um, are you allowed to say when you anticipate that request will be filed? Normally, no, but because we did a stipulation with the state uh, to extend their answering deadline, it is public knowledge that we do expect to file in the next week or two. Of course, different things can happen. Maybe that gets pushed out, but it is coming soon. We, you know, we have a draft. Uh, it'll it'll be coming through soon as we finalize it. Yeah, and then we're going to hope to have a hearing in I think February or March, um, and we'll see how the judge rules. Uh, hopefully. Uh, maybe I'll come back on your show with some good news in a couple months. We'll see. <laughs> uh, we might not even uh, make you wait that long, Casas. There's so much going on these days <laughs> that uh, it might just be a few weeks before we uh, call. I need to come back. But thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all of the work that you're doing uh, there with Michelle and Associates out there in California. Uh, truly, you are a civil rights activist and you are fighting for, you know, the good people whose rights have been denied for far too long. So please keep up with the good work. And I do hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Thanks for having me, Cam. It's a pleasure. Again, congratulations to all of the attorneys, all of the plaintiffs working on these cases. And uh, hopefully this is just the beginning of uh, even more good news to come when it comes to our right to carry in California. Right now, let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We will start there with a case out of California. A, a teen wearing an ankle monitor arrested after a violent robbery of a 12-year-old in Colma, California. Why did the teen have an ankle monitor on? Well, apparently he had previously 
been arrested and charged with illegal possession of a weapon. The 17-year-old was on probation for weapons charges, according to the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office. Incident happened uh, about a week ago near the uh, Colma Bart Station, uh, at a time, by the way, in which uh, concealed carry was not allowed on public transportation. The uh, teen allegedly punched a 12-year-old victim, stole the victim's cell phone, according to the sheriff's office, the victim's hand injured during the robberies. Witnesses identified the suspect to deputies who located him after receiving medical treatment, according to a press statement. The uh, unidentified juvenile booked into the Hillcrest Juvenile Hall in San Mateo on a charge of strong-arm robbery. It's been about a week, so I'd be shocked if the uh, juvenile is still there. But again... What do you expect, right? You're a uh, teen caught in illegal possession of a weapon and you get sentenced to probation and an ankle monitor. That really doesn't indicate that the criminal justice system is taking that offense all that seriously now, is it? Uh, Today's armed citizen story from Manchester, New Hampshire, where authorities have determined that a a shooting that took place several months ago was, in fact, self-defense. Uh, and will uh, the uh, individual who acted in self-defense will not be facing charges. This actually happened nine months ago, back in April of 2023 in Manchester, New Hampshire. It was about 7 p.m. when a, um individual named uh, Rodney Yancey um, was shot and killed. He was a 43-year-old. Uh, the individual who shot and killed Yancey, I'm not going to release his name because he was the victim of a crime. Uh, I know that his name is out there in some news reports, but uh, the armed citizen was visiting with his girlfriend at her apartment. A guy uh, identified as Nancy, or Yancey rather, uh, walks in to the apartment through an unlocked door and sits down at the kitchen table. So the armed citizen's there with his girlfriend. The girlfriend's roommate is also there as well. The uh, unknown individual then opens a can of beer that he had brought with him. Everybody kind of looks at each other and says, do you know this person? And when they all figured out, no, none of us know who this person is. Um, they asked him to leave the apartment. He responded with confusion, according to authorities. Uh, the three testified that uh, Yancey seemed inebriated and appeared to think that he lived there. Now, eventually, they did get him out of the apartment, but he's still on the front porch at the time. When the armed citizen asked him again, leave the property, Yancey refused. And that's when uh, the armed citizen ended up sort of pushing him down the front steps of the apartment. Yancey then grabbed a knife that he had in his pocket pulled it out, and started advancing back towards the armed citizen. That's when the armed citizen pulled out his firearm, pointed at Yancey, and again told him, get back, leave, you don't belong here, you don't live here. When Yancey continued to advance, gun in hand, the armed citizen fired three shots, called 911 after Yancey fell down. Police responded to the apartment complex, found Yancey alive with several gunshot wounds to his chest. Medical aid was provided, but he did pass away at the scene. Um, the armed citizen question. Uh, Exited the apartment building, hands in the air, told police that he had his firearm in his pocket. Police secured the firearm, detained him uh, while they uh, questioned him. His claims of self-defense corroborated by eyewitnesses and evidence recovered at the scene. Police found that knife with a blade extended on the porch directly in front of Yancey's body. Um, The uh, armed citizen, a lawful gun owner, legally purchased his handgun about a year before the incident. It was legal for him to carry it concealed. Uh, The investigation went on to determine that uh, Yancey had a blood alcohol level at the time of his death of 0.25%, which is about three times the legal limit for public intoxication. And the attorney general determined that the armed citizen reasonably believed that he faced imminent deadly force, which justified his own use of deadly force. Detectives concluded that the armed citizen took the correct steps to try to de-escalate the situation 
and did not use excessive force. Now, again, I don't know why it took nine months to make that determination, but uh, authorities finally have come to that conclusion, and the armed citizen will not be facing any charges there in that incident. Finally today, our good deed of the day, in the right place, at the right time, unable to do the right thing, a school resource officer in Massachusetts who was able to come to the aid of a high school student who was choking on a piece of Salisbury steak, one of the few good meals, by the way, that uh, I recall from uh, my days in public school, right? Friday pizza was pretty good. You got the you know the big square piece of pizza. Salisbury steak was all right too, but uh, you know what? Anything can be a hazard when it gets lodged in your throat, and that was the case um, at King Philip High School in uh, Falls River, Massachusetts. School resource officer Todd Schwalbe was floating back and forth between the uh, high school and elementary schools in uh, Rentham, Mass, when he was alerted that there was a student at King Philip who was choking. Uh, officer Schwalbe came to the rescue able to perform the Heimlich maneuver on the juvenile, dislodging that piece of Salisbury steak from the blocked airway. You can see Officer Schwalbe there. He then called the Rentham Fire Department rescue to the scene to evaluate the student who is okay, recovered, uh, you know, very quickly, as you might imagine. And the uh, school resource officer uh, went back to uh, patrolling the campuses there in Falls River, Massachusetts. So in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Uh, school resource officer Todd Schwalbe there in Falls River, Massachusetts. We thank you for your very, very good deed. Now, that is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company, but I want to thank you, as always, for being a part of the program. Looking forward to being back with you again tomorrow as we continue covering the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. But a reminder to check out BearingArms.com. In the meantime, constantly updating the website with the day's top stories, armed citizen stories, legislative news, legal news, and again, we've got you covered at BarionArms.com. If you like what you see, also encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member. Just go to BarionArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your membership. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free. <laughs>